Daily Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast by thepilotreport.com about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. You've tuned in to episode number nine. Today's show begins with a listener email about autopilot babies and training in technologically advanced aircraft, the four types of hypoxia, using supplemental oxygen, flying around weather and making a go-no-go decision, our picks of the week, and more coming up next. On the Stuck Mike Abcast. Now, here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Rick Felty, Carl Valeri, and Len Costa. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number nine of the Stuck Mike Abcast. Tonight, I'm joined with Rick, uh, Rick Felty, Carl Valeri, and Victoria Newville. How's everybody this evening? Great. Doing great. Just great. And we're doing actually, uh, for those of you who are listening on the recording, we actually are recording this episode and broadcasting this episode live, giving this a shot, see who's listening out there on the, uh, on the internet and see how it goes. We may try and do more of this more often. Let's do the pre-flight. I wanted to get started this evening. We got, I had a, um, actually had a email come in. In our last episode, episode number eight, I talked a little bit about autopilot babies, and we did have an email from a listener come in, and uh, basically the, the gist of the email was they felt that there's a lot of emphasis on training with these new TAA, which stands for Technologically Advanced Aircraft, and there's a lot of emphasis on using autopilots in the training environment, and he, he wanted to reference two accidents that were a clear example of why sometimes the over- reliance of technology and automation in the cockpit can be detrimental. The, the um, two unfortunate accidents, one being the crash of the uh, Colgan flight in Buffalo, New York, and also the Air France crash in the, uh, in the, in the North Atlantic. So what, um, you know, basically the gist of it was that a lot of people, or not a lot of people, but kind of getting too accustomed and not doing some hand flying, maybe not recognizing how your instruments are reading out, especially in time of a failure, can mask essentially what's going on. And those are two examples that he had emailed me. And I definitely agree. I think those are some some real-life cases that are you know noteworthy and newsworthy that folks can relate to on why you don't want to necessarily be over-reliant. Automation is good. It is helpful. It has its purpose, but not to be over-reliant on it. How do you guys, what is, uh, Carl, what do you think about that? Well, you know, I, I, I agree. You can't be over-reliant. As a matter of fact, uh, that was my last uh, blog post was how reliance on automation really does decrease our flying skills in certain aspects. Automation is wonderful, uh, especially when you're busy or when you're tired or during those boring times times when you're cruising along for an hour, two hours, but you really need to make a conscious effort to turn it off and just start flying the plane, do do the flying that you used to do, because that, that automation is going to fail, that autopilot's going to fail, uh, the instruments are going to fail, the your vacuum will probably fail at some point, or your your display or the actual computer that sends the images to your display, something's going to break on you, and you want to be able to go back to actually flying using a uh, 
the regular basic instruments. And a lot of these airplanes have the old school, the old traditional type of uh, instruments that they have to rely on there. Mm -hmm. But yes, I, I really think that like you were taught, we were talking about with the quote unquote autopilot babies. I think a lot of those folks are, are like myself. I do the same thing. I'm like, oh man, I'm, I just, you know, I feel lazy today. You know, I don't feel like working. Here's the autopilot. I'm putting it on. Mm -hmm. But then I, I'll make a conscious effort and turn it off. And, and I, I know in these new SR22s and SR20s, they have a lot of automation. I know Rick, Rick flies them. And, right. and what, what do you what do you feel, Rick? Do you use that well, quite often? Or no, no. You, you know, I think the thing you do is at long range, you know, you're in cruise flight, you're level, and you're going to stay there. You know, and you want to do something else temporarily or, you know, look at charts or do things. You, you could put on autopilot. But I was about to say that it, for me in the GA world, one of the things I learned pretty quickly is there are situations where sort of environmental situations where even in level cruise flight, you you don't, you don't want to have that on if you're getting bumped and buffeted a lot. Um, you know, you, you, you kind of want to, it's better to ride that with your hand or let it, or let the plane move around and not have the autopilot constantly trying to, trying to fight it. So, you know, in a way, if, even when it's on, you you've got to be monitoring it and be ready to jump in and, and make, and make a decision to not have it on. So it's never about letting, you know, just letting things go. There's all sorts of stuff to do. And I do think keeping an eye on when it's appropriate to have it on is important. So that's, that's my two cents. Great. Victoria, you, uh, you said that you don't use it very often. Does, um, does the glass air that you do fly, does it have autopilot equipment? No, it doesn't. But uh, the Cessna I fly does. And we actually went flying this weekend and I tried to use it. I wasn't sure if I was setting it up right or not. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't trust it. Like I, I don't know. I was a little bit off course and it was just doing the steep turn to get back to it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I'll disconnect. I'll do it myself where it feels more comfortable. Right. And, uh, yeah. So I think it's good if you're on course to begin with and then it doesn't <laughs> seem so distrustful, but right. excellent points. Now entering cruise flight. Well, moving forward, but referencing the last episode, I mentioned how, uh, we got on the discussion a little bit about hypoxia and I wanted to do a little bit of a more, you know, more in-depth discussion on hypoxia, and then we're going to do a little bit of uh, discussion on flying, like summer flying and and go-no-go -no decisions and judging how you'd fly around storms and stuff like that. So going into hypoxia, I wanted to give a quick, um, you know, I'll start off with just giving basically some of the quick rundown. Uh, hypoxia is a situation where there's a lack of oxygen. It's, it ca it's caused due to a lack of oxygen. And there's basically four kinds of hypoxia. Um, Victoria, do you remember one of the names? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I do I get you on the spot because we're live, too. Uh, I gotta, I'll be right back. i got to go get a book. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm just teasing. Anyway, the, uh, yeah, the, one, the first one is called hypoxic hypoxia. And that's basically when there's low air pressure. Uh, and, and basically your lungs are incapable of transferring the oxygen that's in the ambient air into your bloodstream. So one thing that you, you know, it's a common misconception. At higher altitudes, there isn't less oxygen in the, in the atmosphere. There's just less pressure. So basically with less pressure, it's more difficult for your lungs to take a deeper breath to get the same volume of air and oxygen moving around your circulation system. So hypoxic hypoxia is due to a low pressure on your lungs. Basically, there's not you can't take a big enough breath of air to bring that in. The second type of hypoxia is called hypemic, and that is the blood's capacity to carry oxygen 
is actually impaired. And this would be due to something like carbon monoxide. Uh, what happens is like carbon monoxide molecules actually bond to your blood cell. And they're more, uh, your blood cells are more averse, they're, they're, they're more magnetized to something like a carbon monoxide molecule than they are an oxygen molecule. So basically, in an instant like, instance like that, your blood actually can't pick up the oxygen and carry it. The, uh, the third kind is stagnant hypoxia. And that is when um, the blood can't flow to deliver the oxygen. So there might, you, maybe you have poor circulation uh, due to heart issues, uh, if you're in shock. Colder temperatures can do this because sometimes your blood flow will usually um, re- retract from your extremities into your clothes to keep your, the core of your body warm. So uh, that's, that's a reason for stagnant hypoxia. The last type is histoxic hypoxia. And that's actually when the blood cells can't use your oxygen because of contamination due to such things as alcohol or narcotics. Essentially, if you've ever had a few too many beverages, adult beverages, you feel hungover the next day, your body is actually has a, has a lack of oxygen in it due to, um, you know, the alcohol and the substances in your body can't use it as efficiently. So those are the four kinds of hypoxia. Now, um, does anybody know? How about somebody probably give me some signs of what some s- signs and symptoms of hypoxia? Who wants to give a stab? Oh, oh pick me, pick me. <laughs> <laughs> Victoria says euphoria. That's good. Go ahead. Uh, why don't you give us one, Carl? Oh, my, my favorite word. It's called cyanosis. Cyanosis. What yeah. is cyanosis? Tell me cyanosis. about cyanosis. It's it's where your fingernails start getting blue and your lips start going blue. Cy- as in cyan. That's color. right. That's what they start turning. That's right. Wow. That's a cool word. Cyanosis. Cyanosis. Isn't it? That's my word of the day. <laughs> wow. Yay. Okay. <laughs> Rick, do you uh, you have any other ideas on symptoms and signs? <laughs> No, I don't. Okay. (laughs) Well, uh, so just a couple other common ones. Uh, We covered cyanosis, euphoria, the feeling of, uh, you know, just a general feeling of goodness. Um, Laughing is actually one of them. Uh, You kind of get a little giddy. Uh, I have experienced some dizziness, and sometimes confusion can be involved. Uh, can be a good sign of symptom. I've had the opportunity. I'm going to talk actually. A pick, my pick of the week later on is about doing a high altitude physiology ch- uh, ride in a high altitude chamber. Um, oh. But right now, I can tell you some of my symptoms. I had an opportunity to actually do this, and mine were. Um, I had euphoria. I didn't have a care in the world. We were up there. They had to take off the oxygen masks. In the, and this is in the altitude chamber. And after a few minutes, he's asking everybody how it's going. And he says, hey, Len, how you doing? I was like, I'm great, man. He's like, why don't you put your mask on? And I was like, nah, I don't want to. I'm feeling good. <laughs> and it was fun because they had, they, had like, they had a very simple child's game, a child's toy in there, where you basically fit the, shaped, the shape into the proper peg hole. So you put the round peg into the round hole, the square into the square, et cetera. And they would pass this around. So you got, you got this this state of hypoxia and you just take this square and you keep trying to jam it in the round hole and you just keep doing it systematically once you know one time after another after another not even thinking about that hey this isn't the right piece this just should go in there and it's a it's a definitely an interesting experience um you know just having issues with hypoxia 
So um, the regulations, it's interesting. There's, the FAA tells us there's regulations on this is how we're supposed to, supposed to operate uh, with, the, with the idea of using oxygen, supplemental oxygen, and then they have best practices, which is completely different. So to just to briefly recap the regulations, anytime you're flying in a cabin altitude that's 12,500 feet to 14,000 feet, uh, if you're flying for greater than 30 minutes, you should you are required. The flight crew is required to use supplemental oxygen. Anytime between 14,000 and 15,000 feet, the flight crew must be on oxygen at all times. And above 15,000 feet, flight crew must be oxygen at all times, and it must be available for passenger use. And this is each occupant, not just for the entire. And you know, if you've got a pressurized cabin, it's a non-issue. But if you have four people in the back of your, uh, you know, your Cessna 206, which is turbocharged, each occupant has to have access to a mask or some sort of supplemental oxygen. Now, it's interesting. Like I said, that's what the regulations say. But what the FAA actually says, their best practice. They advise that if you're flying during the day that you should use supplemental oxygen if you're above 10,000 feet. And at night, they say you should use it at 5,000 feet or higher. So, you know, the regulations are there as a mandatory requirement, but there are some best practices to help you be, you know, more safer, if you will. Now, um, Carl, tell me, tell me why I should maybe use supplemental oxygen um, above 10,000 during the day or even at night above 5,000. Well, gosh, you know, the, one of the things is is your vision. Boy, I tell you, I've had uh, issues where at night I've gotten so tired, and I've I tended to be maybe probably a little hypoxic. And then I uh, pulled out the O2 mask, started sucking on oxygen, and it's really cool because it seems like someone turned up the the brightness on all the lights. And so there's there's a good reason so that you can actually pick out traffic and pick out the land and lights ahead of you. So there's one good reason. So I mean, at night that. Your your vision is challenged anyway a little more, mm-hmm. right? So sure. So the effects are noticed quicker, probably. Is that what's going on? Oh yeah, immediately. You know, just so you, don't, you, know. you have less margin. You have less margin to mess with if if you start to have uh, you know a, a hypoxic reaction. Right. Um, yeah. So you know those are so those are some of the recommendations. Um, now, Carl, you wanted to add or you wanted to kind of bring into discussion some other things and and, you know i just gave the basics for the time being you had some things you wanted to add to the hypoxia discussion well you know it's it's interesting because we're talking about hypoxia and uh and one of the things i I, there's two things actually i wanted to add it's uh one has to do with with alcohol and uh a lot of people don't realize and i don't mean flying i mean taking passengers they don't realize that that people can actually uh have negative uh, reactions to to uh, alcohol and have have actually um, and suffocate basically because of the fact that there's not enough alcohol going through their blood and uh, and getting to their brains and that's the reason if you notice on the airlines you know the the re- one of the reasons that they don't want you on board is because of the fact that you know you might not make it you know uh, if uh, for instance with just one uh, serving an alcohol like an ounce of alcohol that's they say equivalent to about two thousand feet. Uh, of of actually bringing your your alcohol is bringing your your actual ability to transfer that oxygen in up to two thousand feet. So imagine having three drinks. Okay, now we're up to six thousand feet, and we all know there's been quite a few folks out there that have had way too much to drink there, and uh, and they shouldn't be on board our aircraft. And and obviously for for other reasons, you know, you don't want them stumbling all over the place and and making a mess of everything. But the you know the the other thing too is. 
I trying to figure out if you have hypoxia is not as easy as it seems. And, and Len, you're going to talk about this later, but uh, just for my with my own two cents, I've actually found myself becoming hypoxic slightly. And I didn't realize it until, you know, someone looked at me and said, hey, you all right? I said, yeah, I think I am. And sure enough, I started sucking on some oxygen and felt mm-hmm. a lot better there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, there's, you know, look at the, the symptoms. It's really hard, you know, visual impairment and, you know, you're talking about different sensations and all. And, you know, you just, you really, you get a little bit maybe lightheaded or dizzy and and you can't concentrate you know that sounds like my girlfriend on a good day i'm just kidding by the way i won't i won't tell yeah well if she ever listened to this i would be in so much trouble you know like like the other symptom impaired judgment there you go yeah there you go (laughs) where are you right now i am not you know the door is closed she can't hear this so you're at altitude (laughs) yeah right (laughs) she's in the other room wow But no, I mean, you look at these, these these different reactions, like impaired judgment. I mean, we've all had that, you know, euphoria, visual, you know, there's all these things, drowsiness. Gosh, am I hypoxic or am I just tired? You know, you really, it's, you have to go through the whole list and say, okay, I'm getting, you know, blue fingernails or my favorite word, cyanosis. And, uh, and I'm starting to get myself a little bit hypoxic. I need to put some oxygen on mm-hmm. or descend. And that's Those actually one of the benefits of either doing a little bit more advanced research or reading and understanding on the symptoms of hypoxia, even, uh, you know, if you can't, have, if you don't have the, the the opportunity to experience a high altitude chamber flight, uh, obviously that is the best way to go and uh, get uh, exposure to the, you know, to, to a hypoxic situation because everybody's symptoms are actually different. My, what the symptoms that I have aren't the symptoms that Carl or Rick or Victoria would necessarily have. They're not identical. They're not even amongst people. So, uh, you know, it's a good point. Like you said, Carl, you, you, you're like, oh, I'm not really sure if I'm hypoxic. Maybe I'm tired. It's, it can be difficult to tell. And a lot of times, uh, you know, folks don't even realize how severe it is. It's kind of like carbon monoxide, some similar symptoms where, you know, you're kind of feeling giddy and you're just not sure. So, you know, if you're ever feeling strange in the airplane, start thinking what, what could be going on. Um, you know, because it's definitely you don't want to you don't want to be like in the story we talked about last week, which actually was fortunate they had a good outcome. Uh, but the story last week was there was a gentleman and his wife in a Cirrus. He became incapacitated. I, th- I think the story led to further research was his oxygen his oxygen tube had become um, uh, crunched up and and there was no oxygen flowing to him. He passed out, and his wife, who wasn't a pilot was actually able to fly the airplane uh, with the help of somebody via, you know, air traffic control to a lower altitude where the husband regained control and uh, or regained consciousness and then took over the aircraft and landed. So, um, you know, if you're ever feeling strange, start to think, uh, and that, that might actually be a good time to put on that there, autopilot. Hey, somebody, some, <laughs> just throw this out there. Is there any other way to know if you have cyanosis Besides your finger, is that just fingernails or fingernails it's, it's, and it's lips? Lips, okay. Because in the but you can't the, see your own lips, right? Somebody <laughs> in the in the uh, in the UStream live chat is asking you know, how women who have painted fingernails would see, would see that, and so I thought I'd throw it out there. So I guess it's lips and a mirror. Yes, yes, indeed. You can also have a well, pulse oximeter. That's apparently. true. Yes. Good. Actually, why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Victoria? Since you brought it up, you're on the spot. All I know about it, it's kind of like at the doctor's office. You clip it on your finger. Yes. It tells you how much oxygen, oxygen yes. is flowing through. That's correct. And it would seem, so. seem, seem to me, obviously, if you're traveling at an altitude where these things could be problematic, 
you're, you know, you're going to want to have the tools at hand to maybe check it or be sort of hyper vigilant about it rather than, you know, when you're not, you know, mm -hmm. so there's clear times when you'd be at risk if anything went wrong. And so obviously if you're, if you're alone, it's a bit, it's hard, it's hard to gauge whether you're having an effect if no one's sitting next to you to help you judge that. But, um, anyway. So yeah, there's if times you're flying for, over mountains or something. Yeah, be you know, more careful. You're obviously going to have hopefully oxygen with you. There's yeah. some right. extra tools that you might want to bring just to be exactly, safe. exactly. Yeah, and the pulse. And those are. Go ahead. I was, was going to say those aren't very expensive. Is, is that what you're going to say there, Len? Well, the I know. Oximeter. Yeah, the pulse oximeter. I don't. I, it's definitely around less than a hundred dollars. If it's less than fifty, I don't remember specifically. I've used one. Uh, actually, I've, a flight instructor that I know. When we were doing a lot of flying in the Cessna 206, um, we would bring it with us. The uh, one, not caution, but just advice, if you're going to use a pulse oximeter, um, know what it is on the ground because your own physiological makeup, whether, you know, if you're a very active person or you're not active, if you're overweight or not, if you're a smoker, your oxygen is, again, just like I said, your symptoms might be different from everybody else. Your, your normal baseline oxygen readout on a pulse oximeter may be different than everyone else's. So you should have a good reference of what it is on the ground uh, and maybe do it over the course of two or three days, again, because it changes if you've had a couple of drinks, if you're tired, it changes constantly. So having a baseline before you go flying and using a device like that is actually a very good uh, a very good idea so that when you do get in flight, if you're using it and you're looking at it saying, why am I at 80? Well, if 85 is normal, 80 is not so bad. But if 95 is normal and you're down to 80, well, that's a different story. Yeah. Um, and Go ahead. You know, to add to that, too, we're talking about the oximeters or oximeters. There's uh, the other thing we didn't mention is the uh, CO, carbon monoxide detectors. And uh, there's there was a good uh, review on one of the other podcasts, and uh, I can't remember the name, but I'll, I'll come up with it. But they, it's uh, an electronic uh, carbon monoxide detector. You know, the, the ones that are on the dashboard, you stick it there, and it turns a different color. Those only last like a month yeah. after you open them. But right. there's another way to tell, hey, am I having, am I hypoxic or, you know, is it because of car carbon monoxide poisoning? Well, this little thing will go off just like the one in your home. It's a similar, you know, it's a, uh, it was a nine volt battery or something like that that you put in there and it, it lasts for like five years. And it's a great thing to have in an airplane. So here's another tool. I know we, you know, we're up to all these different tools to have in your plane, but boy, I tell you, it's, it's really worth it. Mm -hmm. And uh, just for your safety to have a, you know, CO meter in your aircraft. Yeah. Um, sure. Has anybody, well, I mean, like I've done, a, you know, an actual flight in a high altitude chamber and intentionally been hypoxic, but uh, of my other co-hosts, has anybody experienced any symptoms of hypoxia that they're aware of? I, I have not. I have a bit, just like once it was, it can be lower than what the FAA recommends. Correct, too. it can be. You know, I remember yeah. I was tired and hungry, and I felt really sleepy beyond normal at 11,000 feet before. And, mm -hmm. um, I did doze off, but luckily someone else was flying. Yeah. <laughs> I think those things can add to it as well. You know, obviously yeah. fatigue's a big one if you haven't eaten. You know, your body is just, it's going to give up sooner than later. I think we all, you know, if we, if, if we all go up to altitude, we are somewhat hypoxic. True. At, at all times, and that's uh, and you do find that there's, I get more tired, et cetera, and, and start yawning, and and again, if I can find an oxygen mask, just throw it on, I feel better. 
Mm-hmm. But I don't know how these guys do the, you know, these people that compete up at higher altitudes. I know they they go up there and they train for a while, but that's that's crazy. You know, I, you know, <laughs> I would just be like, oh my god, I'd have a heart attack. I'd be dead. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> well, don't do it because we need you to come back for next episode. Well, thanks. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, but that's not the only reason. Uh, hey, we're not going to go into any more bromance discussions tonight. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving right along. Um, is there anything that you know anybody wanted to add to the hypoxia discussion? Uh, anything I might have missed? I kind of think I hit the high points as far as that goes. Good job. Oh yay, thank you. Um, so great. All right, awesome. I'm moving on the um, the next idea for the evening was um, well, Rick. Why don't you tell us what your your question? Yeah. You wanted to pose a question and have a group discussion about weather. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I I think this is this came on the heels of one my trip to Oshkosh a year ago, and then you know watching others in process of getting there or hearing their stories this year um, made me realize that this was an interesting issue that I sort of had some knowledge of, but you know had not really faced it much myself. And that's that's having to do with making a long cross country trip when you know there is, you know, weather potentially going to be somewhere in the area of your route. Um, and, uh, you know, in making one, making the decision about whether that line of weather is uh, severe enough that you should not go or the decision that, you know, yeah, I think I could probably make it through there because, you know, on board I have, I have weather equipment that will, that will help me, you know, pick some spots, especially if it's widely scattered and it's not, you know, convective and, or, or not, not a solid wall enough or whatever. So there's, there's definitely some evaluation at the start. And then once you're doing it, once you're, you know, airborne and you're, you're heading in the general direction of your, uh, of your ultimate destination, you know, Dan, using, using that. And, 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 uh, if you're not on a, on a, you know, flight, if you're not, you know, instrument on a, you know, instrument plan or, or if you're using flight following, getting some help with uh, vectors to, to move in a direction that gets you around them. And I just have never had to approach that yet. I would tend to be cautious of, about even trying to launch if I didn't think that I was going to get to where I wanted to go. But I know a lot of people that go, eh, I could probably make it. I'll just, you know, I'll, we'll go up and we'll get as far as we can go and we'll, and we'll do what we can do. And I guess I want to have a conversation about um, what determine what you guys think about what determines uh, a reasonable, you know, a reasonable risk of going and or what the tools now allow you to do in air that that allow you to maybe make a slightly more liberal decision, you know, before you even go. So I don't know if that makes sense. But I think there's a lot of people I see pretty well navigating their, their way from place to place, even with some, you know, rain in the area or whatever. And, uh, I think it's interesting, and I'd like to know more, you know, more about how how what thinking goes into it. So I don't sure. know how, who has to who wants to comment, but I, it's, I think it's an interesting topic. I'll, I'll lead it off to Victoria because, as as I've mentioned in a previous episodes, she's done a lot of flying this year back and forth to go see various shuttle launches um, from uh, Maryland down to Florida with and while well, going out to Michigan too. A lot of weather avoidance. So why don't you give us an idea? You said you actually have sort of a, a pre-flight system that you've put together for figuring out um, what your go no go decision will be? Well, uh, yeah, we've been down to Florida three times this year and none of them went as planned. You know, when you're going such a long distance, you're, something's bound to happen. Um, pretty much. Yeah. I've, I thought about it afterwards, you know, what's the best way to approach each day. And, um, 
if it's obvious that it's something easy to pick around, we'll go. Um, and if it's obvious that it's a huge, dangerous thunderstorm, you know, we won't. Uh, but storms can be unpredictable and things can turn out much nicer or worse than expected. You, you never really know. Um, so if we are in the air and heading to our destination, um, we usually have a game plan in mind saying, hey, we know we can make it safely to such and such airport where, hey, we might have to wait it out or we can go a little bit closer, see how it looks and, you know, might be able to make it all the way there. That's where um, an onboard weather system is really helpful. But you also have other things to help you out with if um, ATC is capable and has the time. You know, they'll help navigate and tell you what they're seeing. And then there's also Flight Watch that you can give a call. Um, let's see what else. Um, there was actually some some tips that I looked up, um, some statistics from the AOPA Air Safety Foundation. Oh, yeah. 68% um, of 204 thunderstorm-related accidents occurred between 12 p.m. and 8 p.m. And 50% um, were between 3 p.m. and 8 p.m. So timing could be a big factor. A lot of those storms um, are after the time of noon. So before mm -hmm. noon, when things are just still heating up, haven't created any convective activity yet, could be a better chance to go. So time is right. something that you want to look into. Right. That's cool. Um, yeah. Um, well, one example, uh, I guess, would be we were flying down to Florida and some storms brewed up on our way. So we picked an airport that was close to our destination that was still reading clear. And this is kind of where your skill comes in handy because you need to know that things can change any moment. And we saw the line of rain coming towards the airport and the second our wheels hit um, the runway, the tower uh, beacon went on to report IFR and it just started pouring. Wow. So, um, you know, it, things can change quickly and you need to be aware of that. So sometimes you might not want to just go right to the edge of the storm because it could turn towards you. So it might be good to be a couple miles away. Right. And some of that sounds like it, as you said, it's experience. You know, you build up some sense of, of how safe something is because you've done it a few times and you have a sense of it. Exactly. By the third attempt to go to Florida <laughs> and yeah. after dodging all these storms the past two times, we knew what, you know, we could get away with. Right. So to speak. Right. Right. Um, and what, what weather equipment are you using? Uh, it's not on. The, you have. Yeah, go ahead. We have the Anywhere map. So it's like a portable tablet. But was that the Anywhere map as I use XM weather? Yes. Okay. So yes, you have XM, XM weather. Yep. But all the while we still called Flight Watch too to see, right. hey, is what you're showing match up with what we have? Because they can have delays and there's been accidents. Um, mm -hmm where airplanes were trying to go through holes and they weren't there anymore. So they ended up riding right through a thunderstorm because there was, you know, five, 10 minute delay on their GPS. So that's kind of why they give you that rule of thumb. I think it's 20 miles between cells that you need to keep away from. Right. Um, they give you that for a reason because things can close in on you quickly. Yeah. And I, and that's why one point I was going to bring up with the, you know, the XM weather is a great product, but you have to be attentive to the refresh rates and, and how quickly you're receiving that information. You mentioned flight watch though, how I actually haven't had an opportunity to use flight watch. Would you take a moment and explain how you do it? <laughs> Bob just tuned in and said, order pizza. We heard that one day. Someone's ordering pizza <laughs> over flight watch. <laughs> Apparently, it's legit. You can do that. If they have the time, they'll help you out. But um, 
Anyway, uh, I think it's 122.0. You can call up. Um, some are over VORs. Um, some are just regular flight service stations. Basically tell them where you are and basically what you want. And it's just kind of like calling flight service on the phone for a weather briefing. Um, we tell them specifically what we're looking at because we know what cells are in front of us. And sometimes, you know, they'll say, hey, it looks like it's a better bet going to the west or to the east. And from my experience, this looks like it's not going to get better or it will dissipate. And um, We found them to be very helpful. So, you know, use all that you have available to you. Don't rely just on the weather. Get another expert's opinion. And using the frequency, because that's a, that's a nationwide frequency. So how do I know whether I'm calling Atlanta or do I just use the nearest major city? Yeah, you can look up, um, shoot, it's like the ARTC area. Is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. um, it can tell you. I know there's like a function on the GPS, which will show you what the nearest one is. And you just call it up. And sometimes you get um, replies from multiple stations. So when you tell them where you are is how they know, you know, should I listen to this guy? Okay. Yeah, you'll say, you know, I'm 30 miles from this VOR. I, I think the terminology they want you to use is like any flight watch if you don't know who you're calling. You know, any oh, flight watch is a Cessna 12345 over Atlanta. And, uh, you know, I'd like to get some weather information. And they'll say, oh, you're talking to Atlanta flight watch. How are you? Oh, okay. Kind of thing. It's any flight watch is usually what we use if you don't know who you're calling. Okay. Interesting. Kind of like any radio. If you need to do that to talk to flight service, you're like clueless where you are. So you say, any radio, this is where Somebody. I am. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Somebody, please. Well, that's good. Yeah, I've never but, used Flight Watch. I actually used Flight, uh, I called Flight Service a few months ago uh, at work. There was uh, a NOTAM for VIP movement in the New York City area. And it was very unclear on what time, well, I knew what time it was, and it was during our time of arrival. So we're on our way into the airport. Um, in flight, in cruise flight, and I said, I'm going I'm to call flight service and see what's going on with this. And I called flight service, and he's like, you're who? And I was like, yeah, this, you know, this is who I am. He's like, okay, uh, let me check, because he's kind of surprised an airline was calling. And then he's like, no, no, you don't have to worry about that. It does, that doesn't apply to uh, 121 operators, which was, I don't know, maybe a discussion for another time, but I didn't know that some NOTAMs were, I mean, I can understand why, you know, impacting commercial air travel. Uh, I think it was actually the president might have been up in the area at the time, but um, I've used flight service in flight, but never flight watch, so I appreciate the, appreciate the quick lesson. Yeah, no problem. I hope I explained you it know, well enough. <laughs> one, one thing I'd like to add as far as avoiding weather is uh, you know these tools are great. I, I think that was that was actually a great discussion, Victoria. And, and I can't wait to become a flight instructor. I think you'd be great. The uh, the it's interesting where a lot of folks they'll ask flight service, and I'm wondering uh, what your experience was. And excuse me, not flight service, uh, air traffic control, and say, hey, I want to go 15 left, and they're like, well, unable. Well, can I go 20 right? And they're like, unable. Well, then what do you do? Well, and that. That comes up a lot. It's like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm boxed in here. I can't do anything. And uh, we just had this yesterday where we were trying to get, you know, we're flying over the Gulf of Mexico and, and dodging thunderstorms and holding. And I, I said, you know what? We're going this direction. You know, just deal with it. You know, you got, you're sitting there in, in a, down underneath in, in, the, in the ground and, or on, in some kind of a facility that has uh, air conditioning and, and you're relaxing. And I'm up here slogging it out with these thunderstorms. So you, you just tell them what you want to do. They don't let them, being air traffic control, 
put you into a thunderstorm because, first of all, they don't have radar and they can't look out the window and see what you see. So, so don't accept anything that's going to put you in a bad situation. And the other thing is just turn around. If you have to, just hey, there's a 180. I'm getting out of here. And uh, you know, as my my cousin in Jersey would say, hey, this Gavone's down here. You know, he's telling me what to do. What are you nuts? You know, with the question here. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going that direction. You know, are you talking to me? No, no, I'm going this. And the other thing you can do, in all seriousness, is you can use your emergency authority. That would be a last resort. That's if you're going to definitely penetrate something like a level six right. or something. Yeah. Right. But yes, wow. don't. Yeah, there's all these different tools. But remember that because we 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 negotiate every day with air traffic control, trying to get around certain storms and certain weather, and uh, don't let them push you into something. And may may not be pushing you into something that they see is there. They're like, well, gee, you know, I don't see that on my radar. What are you painting? And we're like, oh God, there's a big level five in front of us. Oh really? Oh okay. Maybe I have my t- radar turned down. Mm-hmm. Because they do. They attenuate their radar. I mean, I got to visit with the air traffic control here in Tampa, and they can actually look at the traffic on the Gandhi Bridge, one of the bridges here in Tampa Bay. So they can actually adjust that, and they may have it attenuated down. Hmm. So that's my, my just, just, again, negotiate with them first, and then you tell them what to do because you're the pilot in command. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that point up because sometimes you just have to say when air traffic shows, sorry, unable, you just like put your foot down, turn where you got to turn, fly the airplane, and tell them, listen, this is what's going on, and uh, and now every now and then, that's just what you have to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm gonna get all Jersey over you. I'm gonna get all Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> people don't realize I grew up in New Jersey, so I can say. Yeah, that. so you can say that. So you can say <laughs> that's what makes it safe. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, Victoria, did was there anything else you wanted to add to your you know your your process? Um. No, that was pretty much it. I mean, just prepare, be prepared to right. uh, change, you know, um, what, your, what your original plan was because the weather changes quickly. It's not very predictable, even though uh, we try to predict it as much as we can. Things can right. change quickly and might look different up there than it does down below. Um, I can say that I got a, a text from a lovely listener who is correcting me. It's A-R-T-C-C. Air Route Traffic Control Center is... Ah, well, thank you, lovely listener. Yeah, and the A, um, all the AFDs have them, that listed there, too. Right. Which are also available digitally. Right. <laughs> that they cool. are. Is anybody... Uh, I mean, what's... Rick's, yeah. do you... You have... We've talked earlier in earlier episodes about your, you know, your weather observation. You probably don't... You haven't probably started pushing the limits of flying right. in, in nastier weather. How about Rick or um, Victoria or Carl? What what do you you know if there's a storm approaching the airport? What is your what is your thought process in deciding on whether or not you should wait half an hour for it to pass, or taking off and making an immediate turn and taking the long way around? When we're on the ground, or? right before before flight. Well, I I would just prefer not to go but it depends i guess i'd like to know what direction it's going and how fast mm-hmm. you know if it's a very slow moving storm that has just been sitting out there for a while and i had to get to my destination i'd i'd you know i'd do it but i'd be aware of that there could be wind shear nearby and right what hail can come out from great distances same with lightning but um I think that was be a risk. I've, we've done it before on another one of those Florida trips. Mm-hmm. Something was coming in, and we beat it out, mm-hmm. and right. it was perfectly fine. 
Yeah, yeah I, I can imagine that if you saw a line moving at you that was something you couldn't get around, and if it was, especially it was moving quickly, you'd wait it out. If it was moving slowly and cutting at an angle where where one edge of, of it, of the severe stuff, was going to be near you, but there was plenty of room in a certain direction to, to maneuver and get, and get out and get around, that you might take that shot. Every situation is different. There's like no golden rule you really can apply to it. Unfortunately, it depends on also what you're comfortable with. If you don't like seeing lightning while you're in the sky, I mean, that can be kind of nerve wracking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Carl. I, I was going to say, one of the things that I do is, 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 again, looking at the environment, but also saying to myself, say it's Florida, you know, thunderstorms pop up all over the place. And, and I kind of take the, the whole, I, it's a silly term, but I, it's called the hopscotch approach. You know, in hopscotch, you go from one to the left to the right and over. So you, you know you're not going to get there in a direct line. You may have to go right a little bit and land at a different destination. And eventually I'm going to get there, get to the end of... Uh, to my destination, but I may have to divert to another airport. And what I'm always doing is I'm determining, you know, how much gas I have to get to that airport. And if I'm going to take off, uh, maybe it'll be to my benefit to go in that direction because that other airport might have cheaper gas than at my home airport. So I'll go there first, wait for the storm to go by, get around the back of it. You know, I kind of watch that direction and, and go in a much longer, you know, way around. So that's that's just you know one of the things I do. As a matter of fact, another thing that I've done is I was going from Arkansas to uh, to New York, and this was in a jet, and I and it was going to take me say five hours of delays to get through all these storms. They said we're going to have to wait for it to clear out. Well, instead, amazingly enough, if you just go a little bit off course, you can go way around all these storms, and and we went you know, a little further off course and didn't have to get extra gas because I had so much extra on board. I went instead to Alabama, then went to Georgia, followed the course up uh, the coast all the way up to New York. And uh, so I went all the way around all those storms. It sounds like a long way around, but I actually beat a guy that was still sitting in Arkansas trying to get to New York by just <laughs> doing wow. that. Yeah, it's 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 amazing how you can just go around all these different storms and get go off course, even 15, 20 degrees. People are afraid to do that. And I was like, gosh, you know, I'm going, I'm going off course. Why go through all that nasty right. stuff, you yeah. know? As long as you have the gas, like you said, when you have plenty yes. of gas and you can fly around it and, you know, these storms don't move very fast in general. Your plane goes over 100 knots. The storm's moving at, you know, probably less than 35 Um don't fly into one, but flying, you know, flying around them, they're probably not going to catch up to you anytime soon. So that's a good cause. And, you know, I asked a question earlier what some, what some of my co-host's decisions were for taking off. Because uh, essentially, Carl's made this comment, I think, in one of the last episodes. We don't necessarily, in the airline world, have the opportunity for a go, no-go decision. And it's not that they're pressuring you, but basically with our, you know, ability to fly higher and faster and our onboard weather radar uh we don't we don't necessarily uh, basically the idea is unless the airport is closed unless the, the you know air traffic control has closed the airport or your departure fixes your departure corridors due to weather in one of those areas you're going to take off and you're going to have that radar and you're going to like he said um what was your term carl to skip uh, hop, hop. Hop, hopscotch. The hopscotch. You know, hopscotch as a kid. Yes. You know, you play and you go from, instead of getting straight there, you go to the right, you know, one foot to the right, to the left anyway. So, yeah, you know, you'll take <laughs> off and you'll hopscotch around with the radar on. So, uh, you know, it's it's a different, there's different 
uh, different, you know, different applications of each, and it depends on what kind of weather weather equipment you have as well. So, excellent. And to further that point, I, I'd say in the past six years, I've canceled two flights because of weather, and it was because of us, uh, you know, determining through our operations that we could make it in. Yeah. Otherwise, we're going, and that's you know, thousands of flights. And uh, only twice in the past, about like five, six years. Yeah, and I can only remember one of, uh, that I did. Um, and it's just it's one of those times and where the destination is, you know, two hours away. And it just it's low IFR category two all day long. And the entire area is socked in. So you don't even have a good, you know, they wanted us. This was, this was a flight up to Halifax. <laughs> I was going to say St. John's. <laughs> yeah. Our Maybe. alternate was going to be like. Uh, Portland, Maine or something. So where you're going to go, they wanted us to go up there, put all the people on board that we could fit with like full tanks because the idea was to go up to Halifax, go shoot the approach and take a peek. If you could land, land. If not, go to Portland. And we're like, that's just the most asinine thing you want us to like. We're going to have to have so much gas. You can't take all these passengers for us to just go up there to have a look and then most likely go to Portland. So, uh, yeah, that was our up. That was my one flight. We just told them, no, nope, we're not doing it. Cancel it. It's, it's, it's useless. It's, you don't want to do that. So, uh, yeah. And we had plenty of gas to do that, but that's an, that was, that's an example of just knowing when it's too foolish, you know, when you're going to fly two hours to, to go do a shoot and approach to then fly an hour to go to your missed, you know, your, um, your alternate and then be 20 minutes from your, you know, your point of departure in the first place. Well, that's just foolish. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, great. Um, anybody else have anything to add to the weather discussion? If you have to stop, enjoy it. You know, you could find a new cool airport with a great $100 hamburger. Yep. Actually, that's what that, we did so. that poses another question those of you uh, who have been out there flying love to hear some feedback on the website even those listening to the live stream right now if you've ever been out there during any weather flying uh, have you ever had to divert due to thunderstorms or cancel a flight we'd love to hear you know what what it was you're experiencing and uh, what your decisions were and as far as uh, carl rick and victoria have you guys you know ever been out there flying and had to change your destination because of storms and weather and route Oh, yeah. Yeah, I sure have. <laughs> I sure have quite a bit. I've actually. canceled many a flight. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, I, I've diverted uh, in the past two months. I've diverted twice to a, an alternate somewhere I didn't want to go, you know, somewhere I had to go because mm-hmm. I couldn't get in there because of the thunderstorms. Oh. And, I've actually had to, and that's that's a lot, I think, mm-hmm. you know, and it's uh, just, you know, go stop, get gas and, and keep on going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No 100 on hamburger, though, at the place I stopped. Well, <laughs> pick a better should. airport next time. <laughs> yeah, I know. I should. <laughs> that's, what, that's when it's okay to pull out your iPhone and flight and see where yeah. you can go. Wait, does this place yeah. have, a, have some food or we what? Reception, you know, call them and say, hey, what are you making for lunch? <laughs> oh, you can use FlightWatch, remember? <laughs> oh, that's right, FlightWatch. There you go. Hello. <laughs> we actually stopped at a place once. Um, and we knew it had a hotel. That's why we stopped because there was a hotel real close by. And it was in walking distance. So as we're walking away from the airport, we had to pass a prison. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's some better choices to be made, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Our picks of the week. Awesome. Well, uh, well, we'll go ahead and if nobody has anything else to add, we'll go ahead and move into the picks of the weeks. Any objections? No, go for it. All right. Picks of the week. Here we go. Picks of the week, just for a recap, are uh, the co-host and myself will share, we like to share different aviation products, services, websites that we've either used or stumbled upon, found useful, interesting, anything that's, 
you know, worthy of being shared with you guys, our listeners out there that uh, may may be helpful uh, in your flying endeavors. So, Carl, why don't we go ahead with you uh, in your pick of the week? Well, my my pick of the week is actually uh, one that a lot of folks use to track uh, flights when they're uh, traveling. Uh, this one's called Flight Aware. Flight Aware is what it's called. But I use it, and I'm sure a lot of the folks out there would use it, to see where a plane is that you are using, say, next. Say you're in a club or, like me, you're a partner in an aircraft. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the details, but there's a couple functions I wanted to talk about that I love. Number one the N number. I can put an N number in there. Of course, I have to register on this website. It's free. And any time that aircraft takes off or lands and files a flight plan under IFR, I know about it and I can track it. So say this, one of the airplanes I'm a partner in, I want to track to see if it's coming in early so maybe I can go up and go do some touch and goes or do a lesson or, or go get the $100 hamburger. Well, I can actually watch that and see them actually go around the different uh, thunderstorms and there's going to be – there's actually a chart or a map on there that shows you all those storms. I um, – you know, I, I'd give you my end number to, to track it, but, you know, just like a social security number, I think you're not supposed to give that out. And this, but there, what's interesting is I put a couple actually up on my Facebook page at uh, Expert Aviator on my Facebook. I, I did actually put the track of my last couple of flights where uh, we did some practice holds, and you can actually watch this green line that tracks your flight, and it'll do, show you all the holds and everything. The nice thing, too, is you can set up FlightAware so that not only will it give you, say, an email, it'll all also text you and say, okay, you know, your plane has arrived, either, you know, your, your private aircraft or if you're tracking an airliner, your, your uh, airliner. There is some talk, and, and I know it's, it's uh, a lot of debate going on right now as to whether uh, some of those end numbers can be uh, made private, uh, especially for, you know, individuals that, that don't want their, uh, their aircraft being tracked around the U.S. And that's a whole topic for another discussion. But flightaware.com is. Is, is an excellent resource. It gives you a little bit of, of weather. It gives gives you some photos too. You can actually plug in an end number and it'll actually pull up photos that, uh, and there's photos of, of my airplane. I didn't even know we're out there and none of us took, none of the partners in the plane took. So it's kind of cool. Other people can load up photos of your plane. So again, flightaware.com. Check it out. Ooh. Who's used that? Me. Anybody? Victoria's used it. Yeah, I've used it. Cool. So it's yeah. maybe... That's I'll send you my end research. number, and you'll see our, our, our screwy tracks the uh, past few days, or just look on my Facebook page. Yeah. <laughs> Did you uh, see one the other day? It was um, Gulfstream or something? Mm. Oh, it was a 747. Yes, like, that's right. Tell us about that. You could watch its track, and it wrote 747 in the sky. Yes. Across <laughs> <laughs> the whole entire country. The, uh, oh, the cool. 747-800 was out on some extended... Uh, operation that had to do like a 10 or 14 hour flight so their flight pattern was exactly as she described it they drew 747 across the country uh, cool. during their flight <laughs> i think cessna did a jet or an airplane drawing once too there's a few of them out there that are pretty funny that's interesting lots of gas oh yeah <laughs> seriously so uh okay great well victoria you're next am i um better be prepared <laughs> I, uh, my choice of the week is, it sounds kind of morbid, but um, planecrashinfo.com. It's kind of got a bit of the NTSB website going on here where you can look up accidents and uh, see the whole um, NTSB report and such. But there's also pictures, um, 
and weird things like you can check out the hundred worst aircraft crashes, famous deaths. Um, last words was kind of interesting. Um, I just looked through there and one of some guys last words recorded on the black box was Amy, I love you. And, um, there is a curse word, the very last one at the bottom, someone just swearing. Um, but there's some interesting things that you can pick out there. And, you know, I used to look through those just to learn. And I had to do some reports in school on accidents. And uh, this was a helpful site for me. Well, it's actually not morbid. I have an old flight student of mine who used to read through NTSB reports uh, all the time just to learn because he was a private pilot and he wanted to learn. Um, and it was just something that he did. And it's actually, I think, a very useful resource uh, to go ahead. There's actually, there is a publication. I don't remember it off the top of my head that does kind of talk about accidents uh, more in depth. But, um, yeah, definitely a good tool. Does anybody actually read the NTSB reports or browse the NTSB database on accidents? Uh, sure, yeah, if I'm looking up one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a lot of interesting yeah. things in there. Victoria, I think Victoria can't hear us. We lose her. But, uh-oh. That's okay. The, oh, there she goes. She disappeared. Well, that's all right. It's a good thing she finished her pick of the week. Now we can say bad things about her. Anyway. <laughs> Are we there? Oh, no. We are just talking bad about you. Hey. <laughs> well, Len was, not Actually, me. all I said was we Len. could say bad things about you, but I didn't say bad things about you. I'm uh, listening on the other side. I've got this live streaming. Oh, that's right. I know all. You know all. <laughs> Oh, good. Um, Rick, your item this evening, is uh, it's a neat little tool. Go ahead. Yeah, I um, thought I'd mention it since I do get questions occasionally about uh, videotaping flights. And um, it is a flight from uh, a, a device from uh, filmtools.com, just like it sounds, F-I-L-M-T-O-O-L-S.com. It's called... Um, it's basically look up the word cleat, the cleat, C-L-E-A-T. And... Um, it is a suction uh, mount for very for small cameras. It's not as little um, f- as the GoPro suction mounts that come with the, the GoPro. Um, so it's it's a little bigger than that. Fairly robust. They they recommend it for something not greater than six pounds. They they actually say better that it's closer to four pounds. But you know the little cameras that people use uh, mostly the consumer cameras are, are much lighter than that. Um, and it's. Um, it's a great little. It's a great little mount. I use it uh, at least two of them on most flights, and um, it just it suctions to the. You know, you press it to the window, um, and there's a pump that suctions out the air. It's a fairly robust pump, as opposed to some mounts which are like one switch. This one you pump, and there's a red line indicating that you've pumped enough uh, to, you know, to be solid, to be a solid hold, and it it um, you know it holds for the entire duration of most of the flights I've done. In fact, when we went to Oshkosh, we, we made one stop in Michigan, but you know, it, when we had them mounted, it held, you know, most of the way there. And uh, so anyway, just, just a nice tool. And we'll put the a link in the uh, data metadata so you can uh, find it. But if, if you don't uh, download that version, you can just find it at filmtools.com uh, and, and then search for the word cleat and you'll find it. Yeah. Yours is very neat. Cause I, I like how it has that red line indicator is very a very nice function because basically once uh, I saw in your video demonstration of the tools you use that once the red line is no longer visible, you've got the adequate amount of suction on there to hold. Yeah, and if you start to see the red line, it's still a solid suction, but it indicates that there's it's loosened a bit. Right. So I see the line, and, and usually it's still very solid, but I, you, know, you pump it again, and it 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 
it it holds really really well, and it it's got a standard threaded mount on it for cameras, and uh, and and um, a ball joint connected to that mount on one end, mm. and then the other end ball joint is connected to the the suction itself. So you've got a a couple of angles, and and that all rotates with a separate tightener, so you can you can rotate it around the center axis uh, of the suction mount. So it, it's pretty flexible, and uh, it'll work with any camera you have. So um, and I don't know the price, but it's it's not bad. Again, if you're doing a GoPro, they'll come with those, so it's not something you need for that. But if you're working with regular cameras or with um, uh, still cameras even. I used it actually on a window, not in the airplane at all, on the third floor window of our house to get a time-lapse shot of the um, International Space Station going over oh, cool. um, because I had an angle on the window and the tripod wouldn't get me close enough to the window, but a suction mount on the window, you know, with the top arm higher than it, you know, I lowered the top part of the sash kind of window and and uh, it was great. So it comes in handy for a lot of things. So I uh, I recommend them. They're good. I have, I have, a, I have a few of them. Cool. Would you put, put this on the outside of your plane? No. No. Um, okay. And that's all, well. That's a whole separate subject that, that might right. be worth talking about. But I know that I know there are people that put GoPros on the outside of their planes, and and I can think of a you know a bunch of reasons why I I wouldn't do that. But people do it. So I, and I somehow they don't even though the videos are publicly posted, they don't seem to cause any problems so i don't know i just no they're all internal at least none that we know of yeah especially these the gopros are pretty little you know people are sticking those on the outside of planes seem to not be having any adverse effects and or losing them off the plane which is another big big danger but but my these are all for inside the cockpit yeah well, I ordered a GoPro, and I'm gonna see how. I got the one with the suction cup, so we'll see how yeah. it goes. Yeah, and those we have. The, I've used those as well, and the, and the one, the cup that comes with that, it works great. It's 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 all you need for that, really. You know, it's yeah. perfect. So. Um, cool. Yeah, excellent. Well, I wanted to getting back to the earlier topic. I wanted to share, you know, my pick of the week, and that is a high altitude physiology um, ride in an altitude chamber. Now. When I did this, I did it through a university program, and we had the opportunity to use their facility. And even just a few years ago, I know that there were, you know, half a dozen to a dozen sites around the U.S. at different uh, military installations where you could go and you could take a class there. Now, when I did the research for this earlier today, I couldn't find that information. The only thing I did find is um, on the FAA's website is uh, for aerospace physiology training is that you would have to go to their site in Oklahoma City, to the Mike Monroney Aeronautical Center in Oklahoma City. Um, So I'll give you a brief overview of what they've got there. The course content is they're going to give you physics of the atmosphere, respiration, circulation, talk about uh, decompression, stress, hypoxia, hyperventilation, uh, other things like using general aviation um, oxygen equipment, uh, spatial disorientation, and they, you know, you get a ride in the altitude chamber, which constitutes, let's see, uh, you'll get a rapid decompression where you start at 8,000 feet and you get a rapid decompression to 18,000 feet. Uh, you'll do a hypoxia demo at 25,000 feet. And it's a pretty cool, I mean, like I said, it's the only the only way that I really know what my personal symptoms are, unless you go, I mean, you can always go out with a flight instructor, 
uh, them on oxygen and you not and fly in an, you know, an environment that will make you hypoxic. That's a, maybe a more expensive and elaborate way to go about finding out, but it's a very good tr- uh, training tool. And like I said, there used to be half a dozen to a dozen sites around the U.S. that you could go to and do this, and I couldn't find the information. I left a message for the FAA this afternoon at their uh, hotline trying to get more information. Um, they haven't returned the phone call. When they do in the future, I'll put you know either a post on the pilot report or a tweet out somewhere um, that you guys can you know follow up with me about this. Uh, about the you know, maybe not having to go to Oklahoma City and doing one that's hopefully closer to you, but high altitude physiology training—it's I think it's a a very a good um, a good tool. Last I heard, it was you know only it was it was very cheap. I think it was under the hundred dollar mark to go and do one of these courses for a day. So it's definitely something that could be useful, especially for folks flying turbocharged aircraft at higher altitudes or folks flying out in the Western United States where you're definitely always flying at, you know, above mountains that are 12, 13,000 feet. So good training. You guys check it out. I'll put a link to the information right that I have on the FAA site right now and then follow up later with any information I hear from the FAA. The After Landing Checklist. Why don't we go ahead and let everybody know how we, our individual, uh, you know, contact information. Carl, go ahead. Uh, you can find me at my blog, expertaviator.com, or Twitter at expertaviator. Excellent. Uh, Rick? Uh, RickFelty.com is the blog. Um, Felty is Twitter. And RDFelty on, you, on uh, YouTube. YouTube. Great. And Victoria? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ToriaFly, and my blog is ToriaFlies.blogspot.com. Great. And I'm over at ThePilotReport.com and also The Pilot Report on Facebook and Twitter. The... Uh, the group address is, uh, you know, obviously stuckmikeavcast.com or stuckmikeavcast on Twitter and Facebook. You can always email us, stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com. I tell you, it's been, a real, uh, it's been a real interesting experience broadcasting live tonight. We'd love to hear your feedback. Go ahead, send us a comment on Twitter, Facebook, you know, email. Just let us know what you think of the, the live broadcast. I wanted to try something, see you know, what you guys thought of, seeing you know, like a behind-the-scenes look at how we put together a show. Uh, sometimes hearing what goes on when we're not recording before and after. And so I'd love to hear your feedback. Go ahead and send us some information. Other than that, we really appreciate you tuning in to another episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast, episode number nine. Uh, we, pre- we love getting together, making these for you. Thanks for listening. Everybody, we wish you uh, clear skies and calm winds. Take care. been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Abcast is an aviation podcast brought to you by thepilotreport.com, a Len Costa production.